Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Recent reports found that Welsh water released sewage into rivers, lakes and seas around Wales for almost 600,000 hours in 2023. Those releases account for more than 25% of all hours of discharges into waterways across Wales and England, with latest figures showing more than 83,000 spilled in 2022, 77,000 of which were significant. And not a week goes by now without campaigners highlighting sewage discharges across Wales. While sewage spills attract headlines, our water courses face issues with other types of pollution, such as agricultural, urban runoff, mining and landfill issues. Welsh Water is famously not-for-profit, with the company simultaneously saying removing combined storm overflows was too expensive, while paying its leading executive salaries well into hundreds of thousands. Joining us to talk all things water tonight are Harriet Alvis, Chief Executive Officer of the West Wales River Trust, working towards restoring rivers back to as close to natural conditions as possible. Hello, Harriet. Hello, everyone. Uh, we've got Steve Ormerod, Professor of Ecology at Cardiff University with over 40 years of experience researching into river pollution. He is also Deputy Chairman of Natural Resources Wales. Hello, Steve. Hi, folks. Good evening. And Lorna Davis. Lorna is a landscape architect and the co-founder and director of Suds Planted Limited. She is also a Nuffield Farming Trust scholar whose focus is on the agricultural value of our water resource in the UK. Hello, Lorna. Hello. Wonderful. Thank you all very much for being with us this evening. Um, we've looked at the pot. We've looked uh, at the environment a number of times uh, in the pod, but we've never sort of really solely focused on the massive area that is water you've all got an interest in this area but can you talk us through a bit about your water involvement and some of the most pressing issues you see at the moment in the area harriet you want to start us off uh, so i work for west wales rivers trust uh, and our focus as you mentioned is on river restoration so that involves uh, a range of uh, other improvements that we look at so the first one being habitat restoration so a lot of our rivers, I think about 95% of them have been modified in some way, whether that be straightened, disconnected from the floodplain, um, dredged, structures such as weirs and in-stream barriers put in. So we look at restoring them back to as close to natural conditions as possible. Um, and then a second strand of that will be water quality, looking at uh, a range of water quality improvements that we'll discuss tonight, um, including because uh, we're quite a rural catchment agriculture, but also helping to improve sewage discharges as well where we can. Lorna? So basically I've worked in, I think, all sectors of the water industry and anything relating to it. Um, I started on flood defence and now um, I work around the reduction of flows into sewers to help to reduce CSO spills through a product that I developed following on from having worked within the water industry, identifying where surface water was get, getting into sewers. Um, my focus is predominantly around both quantity and quality, because I firmly believe that you can't disconnect them. I've worked within agriculture, again, around water quality and how, having looked at uh, the water resource, resource on a global scale, the importance is around understanding our water worth within the UK, and the fact that actually there are other parts of the world which have little or no water and we're relying on them providing us with consumer goods and provisions. So for me, water is the most important thing that we have on this earth and actually the betterment of it through people's understanding, respect and value of it is uh, is going to be the way that uh, I work forward. Thank you, Lorna. Steve? 
So my um, research interests, which is, as you mentioned at the outset, run for over 40 years, is, is around the effects of global change on river systems generally, and in particular on their biodiversity. If you look around the world, all the evidence shows us that freshwater systems are hemorrhaging biological diversity faster than any other ecosystem on Earth. And that's as consequence of the fact that they are biologically very rich, but also they are hotspots for a whole range of different kinds of human activities. Um, some of those include both the purposeful and inadvertent disposal of pollutants to fresh waters, which are one of the contributors to biodiversity decline. And from a pollution water quality perspective, my career has ranged from uh, writing a PhD on the why, uh, looking at the effects and solutions to acid rain, understanding across the whole of England and Wales what the kind of trajectory of our river environment is, and of course, looking for the solutions to those problems. You mentioned the River Wye. I'm sure Kerry will talk to you endlessly about the River Wye. Our powers local expert there surely has an interest. Um, but we've, you know, we've had huge amounts of campaigning and sort of general dissatisfaction about the quality of the water, not only in Wales in the UK. Uh, we're seeing a lot of high-profile celebrities add their names to these sort of campaigns to clear up our, our, our waterways. But I do think there's always a bit of a degree of confusion about who's responsible for what and who the real key players are in this field. Harriet, you know, you, you work for an organisation that's that's focused primarily a lot on Welsh water, but who else is in the the same sort of sphere that we should be thinking about in terms of their obligations and responsibilities? Sure. So a key uh, player in that would be Natural Resources Wales, or NRW as they're known. So effectively, they're the Welsh version of the Environment Agency, um, and they're the government regulator for uh, all things river health. But there, there, there's a huge other range of organisations in this space. Obviously, it's not just NRW. There's, you know, we're thinking about organisations such as Welsh Water, other water companies. Who else are the sort of big organisations that we're going to be discussing this evening and will people would have noticed in the press in the last couple of years? Sure, yeah, so you mentioned Welsh Water, obviously responsible for our, our drinking water and our sewage disposal as well, um, and a key uh, issue regarding water quality. Mm. Uh, we've got several other NGOs that are working across Wales to help try and um, improve river health, so the Wildlife Trust, uh, the Six Rivers Trust across Wales in different, different catchments. Um, um, we've also got recently uh, started up in Wales the Nutrient Management Boards, which are hopefully going to be key uh, organisations that help to deliver improvements to reduce phosphates in rivers. Uh, we're trying to coordinate a wide range of those organisations together to to try and tackle the issues. I, I'm going to I'm going to come in here now, and I think uh, Steve really interested in your your work on the why. As Matt said, uh, it is a river I grew up on and know very well from. Uh, from Bill all the way to Chepstow, really, but uh, water—it's a—it's a major issue in my professional career as well. I, I've spent time in Welsh government on it, Canal and River Trust, and a few other bits and pieces. So, you know, I'm really interested in what you've all got to say tonight. And I want to cut to the chase, really. You know, Wales is water-rich, as it were, but it's a massively contentious area. And the news of late is really showing how poorly we are dealing with our water. Is, is that fair, Steve? Or, or, you know, is it just the way it's portrayed in the media? Uh, so the, the, there is a, I, I think one of the things that we've got to get to the 
heart of is the extent to which the narrative and the evidence line up. And for an awful lot of people, when we look at the river environment, it appears from the narrative in the media that we are dealing with a really, really serious set of extremely polluted, um, degraded river systems. In actual fact, if you look at the data and on trends and trajectories, I, I, I first came to Wales in 1982 uh, doing MSc in what was called applied hydrobiology. And the reason that was located in Cardiff in Uist was because 70% of the coal field rivers in South Wales were grossly polluted. And it was a combination of industrial discharges associated with the mining industry, phenols, cyanides coming out of coal and coking plants, um, discharge from, from, from coal tips, leaking trunk sewers, poorly performing wastewater treatment works. And since that time, actually there has been very significant improvement in particular in the urban environment. Uh, the trajectory, however, has slowed down, and we're now at a point where it appears that in Wales, across England and Wales, across the whole of Europe, the improvements that came about as a consequence of EU regulation in the early 90s have stalled. And equally, there are some locations where we can see really clear evidence of degradation occurring. That appears to be in the rural river environment, particularly associated with intensive agriculture. It isn't just one thing. It appears to be several. Dairy is an issue around uh, things like slurry incidents. We can talk very substantially around what's happening with the expansion of poultry, but that is not the only issue in rivers such as the Wye. And I, I think one of the things that people have got to understand is when we look at the river environment, when we look at pollution, we're dealing with a whole plethora of different issues, nutrients, uh, pharmaceutical agents, some issues with organic pollution still. You know, it is, it is a complex area, I would suggest. Yeah, no, I think uh, I'd agree. And in, in some of the research I did for this, I was reading about some of the chemicals we put on pets who then enter river systems and how devastating they can be if they get in there. Lorna, I know you've got that background in agriculture and water and suds. Is there anything you want to add on what Steve said about how we're dealing with water at the moment? I think all of Steve's points are very fair and um, I agree with them. I, one of the things that we don't necessarily understand with regards to um, regulation and um, legislation is actually it's all very well to legislate an industry and I'm, I'm referring to not only agriculture but the water industry as well but it's the affordability of them being able to deliver on those expectations and that is something which actually um, in terms of the time it takes to change and the ability to deliver on that change it is something that for some is actually uh, incredibly difficult to do. Prior to that, um, the understanding, as Steve has alluded to, with regards to water quality sampling and understanding actually what root causes of our degradation of our water courses are, we still don't fully understand what the root cause is for some of the environmental pressures that uh, we're seeing happening in the water courses. Team that with climate change and how we are seeing 
very different weather patterns. You're seeing these sudden outbursts of rain at times of year where you would not otherwise expect them. That potentially can put people into a situation where they're then struggling to be able to manage the runoff coming from their land. I'm going to say CSO spills. Um, it doesn't sit comfortably to think that we have CSOs. However, they were designed there as a relief system to ensure that homes didn't flood. So they have a purpose, which is offsetting another risk. So I think one of the things that we have to look at is actually how much do people know about water quality and how much are we seeing in terms of the delivery of managing water quantity to ensure that it can address flood risk and water scarcity which in, in turn can then affect our ability to deliver on water quality. For the uninitiated amongst us, Lorna, would you mind just uh, giving a definition to CSOs? Oh, so a CSO is a combined sewer overflow. And basically, if you imagine your sewers are like a bathtub and you fill them up and they have so much capacity, which is designed for the amount of wastewater that we're producing. So they are measured as to how much they're receiving in terms of uh, population into each um, particular network. What happens is that within your sewer network, you have generally it's called a combined sewer and your combined sewer has all of your surface water connected in from your highways. It has your roof water and it has your um, any surface water coming off people's houses, so drives and things like that. When it rains, up to 70% of that pipe network can then become full of water, clean water. So the opportunity to take that water out of the sewers allows people to then be able to have capacity in those sewers to allow the sewage to move through and get to the end goal, which is to a sewage treatment works, rather than having to escape through like your high-level overflow and your bathtub, the combined sewer overflow. So that's their purpose, and that's why they're there. Thank you, Lorna. Uh, Harriet, in that same kind of theme as Steve and uh, Lorna have looked on about how we're dealing with our water, Lorna just talked us through CSOs and that kind of area, but river health cannot be achieved by really looking at just the river channels alone. It's, it's a much greater integrated management approach you, you've got some experience in this area. How, how do you think we can go around managing, removing that pollution from our ecosystems? Yeah, thank you. So it's a really good point to raise there, especially around affordability. Um, and if we take agriculture for an example of that, it's really important that we look at the wider catchment house, including soil structure, including farmyards, all, all those kind of things that have an impact on river systems, even if they're some distance away. And when it comes to affordability, it is very hard and we can sympathise with farmers that uh, it's hard to, to invest money into improving or reducing their impacts on water environments when there's such high fluctuations and things like milk prices, for example. It's hard to forecast when they can invest. Also, with uh, the current payment schemes that they're, they're getting, for example, the sustainable farming scheme that's due to come in in 2025, that's still, it's still unclear what that's going to specifically involve, what grant funding that's going to involve as well. So farms are a little bit left, um, you know, not understanding what the current forecast is and what, what they can invest. So improving that structure would be very helpful from an agricultural perspective to, to better improve, reduce their impact on their river environments. In terms of wider, wider catchment and urban environments, particularly, 
Marshwater rightly get a lot of uh, stick for sewage pollution, which they should do. But there's other things to consider when it comes to um, the CSO issues, which uh, includes new development. So most new developments uh, do have separate systems that don't involve CSO. So they separate the, the rainwater and the sewage. But every new surface that we put down, new impermeable surface, so roofing, concreting, it all does then add to that volume of water that's that's going down into CSOs. So it's really important that we look at uh, when new developments are put in place, putting in impermeable surfaces, um, you know, things like attenuation basins to store water for longer. So we get that higher infiltration to groundwater and all those kind of catchment improvements can help reduce pollution. Just building on a couple of things you said there, Harriet, you know, it's, it's great to see what work is being doing with new developments, but so much of these problems do seem to come back to the fact that so much of our infrastructure is sort of creaking and Victorian. Um, and it will be obviously very difficult and incredibly expensive to remedy a lot of these problems. Steve, would you mind just going into what you think is sort of the scale of this problem in sort of remediating so much of this existing infrastructure? I mean, one thing before I, I will give you an answer to that question specifically, but I think one, one thing to be aware of, this is a bit of an example where the public narrative is potentially skewing our uh, thinking away from some of the key issues. So if you look at the impact of CSOs, certainly in terms of water framework directive failures, they're only responsible for 4% of failures. Um, agriculture, poorly performing wastewater treatment, urban runoff, barriers to fish migration are quite often bigger issues. So I think one of the one of the points is around prioritization and where we spend to give us the biggest benefits for the river environment. And that, that's, that's a debate I think we've really got to flush out. Uh, CSOs in Wales, we've got about two and a half thousand of them. Um, that's because in Wales we have about 35,000 kilometres of sewers. We're dominantly an urban set of locations in the south of Wales and in the north of Wales. That's where most CSOs are. And also we in the west of Britain are in part of the wettest of all the bits of the United Kingdom. And th those things in combination is one of the reasons why CSOs discharge in the way that they do. Uh, the current cost estimates, if we were to alleviate problems from all CSOs, appear to be in somewhere between 15 and 25 billion. And that, 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 that kind of sum fluctuates a little bit, which if you do the sums, that's three to four thousand pounds per individual in Wales. Um, so this is not a trivial cost, which is where the question comes around if you were to invest that kind of sum of money, where would it be better to invest to give us the biggest benefits for the river environment? And I think we've got to, you know, we've got to find our way through this debate very, very carefully to give us the appropriate answer around benefit for the cost expended. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Lorna, so much is made about uh, Dua Cymru Welsh Water being not-for-profit. Uh, and it does have high customer satisfaction rates compared to some other equivalent organizations. But, you know, in terms of what we've seen recently in terms of leakage and, and spills, you know, I, you've, you've got to ask the question, should we be asking and expecting better? 
I think we should be expecting better, absolutely, because there is a move across the water industry to address CSO spills, and it is a regulated move that they have to address things like flood issues. So where you've got properties which are flooding, they have to invest in those properties to ensure that they are um, protected. In terms of the methods of investment, I think moving more towards uh, Harriet mentioned it earlier, attenuation basins, actually moving more towards where water companies are delivering. And it's it's not just water companies, it's anyone who has a network which connects into the water um, pipes. So that's in the building sector, that's the local authorities, that's the water companies. All of those have the responsibility that they need to be looking for more green solutions to be able to mitigate the amount of water that's arriving there already, whether it be on a an existing landscape, an existing urban landscape. So Cardiff has got perfect example where they've done greener Grangetown and they've been working to actually reduce the flows of water going to the sewer. Um, there's some other great examples across the UK. However, within the building industry, we still don't have rainwater harvesting and things like that as being a main driver on any new build. Yet we have an issue around water scarcity as well as water excess. Within England, Schedule 3 hasn't been enacted. It has in Wales. So any new build in Wales has to consider sustainable drainage before it then goes on to um, get planning consent. In England, that is a nice to have. It isn't a must have. So the use of water as a tool to be able to actually create betterment in other parts of our lives. So is that in the social side of our lives, in the amenity, in the biodiversity, the environment. It's a really useful lever for change. But I think the water companies are hindered in some ways because they're not necessarily the regulator isn't encouraging some of their partners to deliver sustainable drainage systems. So they are receiving more water than they potentially would like. Um, but I think also, yes, they are not necessarily looked on and proactively encouraged to deliver more sustainable solutions going forward, partly because they work in a five-year regulatory investment cycle. And that does affect how we can actually look at long-term change because some projects get priority because they give you a quick win and they will have potentially there's a lot of political force behind it things like that so it's a challenging space water companies can do better it's just ensuring there are ways and means to enable them to do better billing being another example harriet well not to not to focus too heavily on money um but it's it's one of these interesting areas in it who should be responsible for paying for this whether it be remediation or additional work uh, should it be the public through the government, or should it be the public through their water bills, is seemingly the way we it ends up being uh, discussed. But also, I want to focus a little bit here on on the Welsh government and the role of the Welsh government. If these issues have become so apparent, and Lorna's uh, alluded to some of the work that the Welsh government does in in bringing certain uh, legislation and regulation in force here, what more could the Welsh government do to ensure that this work is being carried out with haste? So the thing that frustrates us slightly is this argument that how much it would cost to invest now. Yes, it would be a huge amount to invest, but it's not like these systems have just we've just discovered overnight that they are Victorian systems. They've built over 100 years ago in many cases. So, you know, 
they could have been invest and they have been investing some amounts. I'm not saying there's been no investment, but the investment could have been prioritized a lot earlier on. And this wouldn't have been such a steep potential rise in our in our bills. Yeah, 100 years is a long time to have made more of a difference. And it seems a bit like just because this is becoming more of a, you know, an, a public concern for the public that now the investment and the efforts going into it. So I would say that if we'd started earlier, then it would have been a, less of a, a concern about the money it needs to be spent, although there's a lot of work needs to be done. Um, so in terms of who should pay, uh, obviously as a not-for-profit system, it, you know, it's a good model that we've got in Wales, that where the any profits that would have usually gone to uh, to shareholders can be spent on on environmental improvements as well as reducing uh, bill prices for, for those who need it. So the, the model's there in place for, for those environmental improvements to be made. Yes, there's not enough potentially to get it all done, but I feel like improvements need to be made with uh, the regulation of water companies in terms of what they're able to deliver. So there is a bit of a, a barrier there with off what. So Lorna's mentioned about the, the five-year cycles. It doesn't give you a, a good opportunity to, to think long-term and to think bigger picture and prioritise projects as, as needs to be done. So that is something that I definitely think should be changed. I don't think I know how, how that can be done, but it's definitely something that should be looked at. Have any of you got any thoughts on how those changes could be done, whether it's uh, what off what do as the regulator, uh, Steve, I know we introduced you with your NRW hat on, but uh, are there any thoughts on how these things could, we could begin to look to change them for many of you? Lorna? Um, oh, sorry, Steve, do you want to start? Um, well, it, it is already changing to a degree because there is this, um, there is this knowledge that actually the five-year regulatory change, uh, for regulatory period, is not necessarily enabling um, water companies to be able to invest in such a way that um, they're delivering long-term benefits. So that has been observed and off what definitely are more accepting of longer-term proposals in the future. However, one of the other places where it could change or should change is in terms of actually looking at what are the additional benefits that... Um, Focusing on water and using it as your umbrella for change can deliver. So I alluded to earlier about biodiversity, public goods, things like that. Mm. Actually, if there was a recognition, and it was a um, a solid recognition that some of these systems are going to be creating betterment over time and so should be rewarded accordingly, or actually in some instances, and when we're talking about water, I said it, at the beginning, quantity is as important as quality. For some to invest in things like reservoirs and stuff like that, they're not necessarily able to do that because the regulator, and it might be the Environment Agency, it might be the Planning Authority, um, and that's England, Wales and Scotland, by the way, um, aren't recognising that this would be something that would be um, should be allowed because it provides a betterment for the environment, it provides a betterment for the water security in that region. And I'm not talking massive reservoirs here, I'm just talking about small, um, just ponds on farm or sort of local community ponds, things like that. But anything that basically allows you to be able to slow the flow of water in a catchment is going to enable you to be able to improve water quality. And that is something which actually regulation can be hindering and does hinder in some instances. So I think we do need to focus on actually 
Um, yes, there are good examples out there, but they shouldn't just be in a pilot study for scenario. They should actually be something which is delivered across the board. Mm. Mm. Steve, did you want to come in on that as well? Uh, we did talk about the menagerie earlier on, by the way. It's getting up to my dog's feeding time and he's scratching sure. at the door. But I mean, the, the, we, I, th I think we're kind of circling around some of the, I, I think there are two key things to say. One is, I really do want to make this point again, again about prioritisation because we could end up spending vast amounts of money on CSOs and discover that we still have significant agricultural pollution problems or, you know, five to 15% of households have their sewers misconnected to the surface drain instead of the foul sewage and wastewater treatment works continue to underperform. So we could end up spending very large amounts of money on something that doesn't solve all of our key problems. And I think that's a really important point. The scale of investment required will increase in any of those areas, just as it would with, with, with deferring costs on CSOs. The, the, but but to, to, I think we, we're circling around one of the other really key issues, which is in appropriate catchment management. And one of the, the, the we, we operate, we've operated actually for a very long time in such a way as we, when we develop urban areas, when we farm landscapes, we very often do it without being properly cognizant of what the impacts are downstream in surface waters. Um, and ensuring that we have the right planning controls, the right financial incentives, the right regulation to get both urban landscapes and rural landscapes managed in a way that's more sympathetic and sensitive to impacts on freshwater ecosystems, biodiversity, ultimate drinking water quality, flood risk, all of those things requires us to have a more joined up catchment oriented approach. Harriet, do you want to come in on here? That I, I just wonder whether you've got any thoughts on not just on Wales, but whether any of the constituent nations in um, the UK need to really have that kind of change of view of the regulator and its remit. Yes, you've raised an important point there about regulation, and that is one of our concerns with regards to sewage, agriculture as well, and various other land, uh, land types and land uses. There isn't really much enforcement of the, of the regulations we have. So for example, a farm can expect a, a visit one in a hundred years, an enforcement visit to look at things like uh, the SAFO regs, which are looking at the storage of, of slurry and silage, big issues on a lot of the farms that we work on and NRW aren't doing enough visits to go and, and you know, show their faces and show that they are a body that needs to, that people need to be concerned about and people need to be following the regulations. So that is something that can definitely help make a difference. Uh, in terms of sewage as well, the cardigan pollution uh, that, that's been in the news quite a lot recently about the failing water treatment works, that, that's been a known issue with NRW for at least eight years and letters were sent, but no enforcement was undertaken on that. The kind of message that sends out isn't preventing any future issues like that. And there's been no similar uh, legal action taken against similar spills that we're aware of in several years. Can I just clarify on a point there? Um, with regards to farm visits, so most farms are actually under some kind of standard. Uh, so that red tractor, um, ARLA contracts, all of those things, they receive a huge number of farm visits every year from people who 
have either approved what they have or are not aware of what they could or should have. But again, it comes back to the affordability for those farmers on a being able to deliver that change and actually the comprehension of what is the root cause of their pollution risk on farm. Because for some, they're just not aware of the sort of scale of potential pollution that comes off a farm because it's... It isn't something that certainly we've had much conversations with agriculture in the past. And it's something which there's more support in England and Scotland around water quality and the delivery of good farming practices to benefit water quality than there is in Wales. And that has been a real issue for Wales when it came to um, implementing the NVZ regs, as I'm sure you're aware, around the work that I did on the water standards. So I think... As um, Steve has suggested, people's understanding of where actually the root cause of these pollution issues is coming from, whether it be on a catchment scale or an individual farm scale, is where we ought to be starting. Our knowledge exchange, our research into root cause, and then from that analysis, how do we create betterment, which is affordable and is prioritised in terms of what needs to be done when to have the biggest impact for the best cost benefit. If my if my background in water serves me right, NVZ nitrate vulnerable zone. Have I still got it? Yes. Do you want me to give you a background on Wales as nitrate vulnerable zone? Very quick. I, I remember doing a lot of work in northeast Wales on that on one time. Got quickly remind us about NVZs. So previously, Wales had a percentage of I think it, it's a very small percentage, like sort of single figures, of NVZs, and during twenty twenty. 2019-2020, a project was launched by um, collaborative project NFU, Cymru, NRW, Welsh Government, to identify if there was an appetite within the industry to improve their water quality. And it was called the farm-led approach and recognition to um, identify and improve on farm practices. Uh, it would have tied into our sustainable farming and our land and 2020, Welsh Government voted that there was no faith in the farming industry to be able to deliver on that. And so they slapped an all-Wales um, all NVZ on the entire country, which in Ireland, when Northern Ireland had an all-Ireland NVZ, they had a budget of a £150 million, I think, to be able to implement change on farm through subsidies towards building covered lagoons, etc., in Wales, they had a budget of less than, I think it was about eight million. We could go to town on uh, budgets and things like that. And, uh, you know, I think we've covered the, the pollution and environmental aspect to an extent. And water is so large. I do want to touch on some of the other issues. And one of the big issues we have to talk about in Wales is that difficult relationship with water suppliers and operators and the use of Welsh valleys to... The supply water to England, flooding the Turin, Eland Valley, those kind of issues, the the emblematic image of little power the Welsh public and politicians had over our own country. You know, how is there a better way for us to deal in with water? Should it be at the local Welsh level or should we be thinking this as a, a UK level? Steve, have you got any thoughts on how as water becomes more scarce and perhaps more might be looked to be transferred across the border, we should be considering these issues? 
I, I, I'm going to begin this, actually. I, I was in a meeting with DEFRA today to look at some issues around the future of agriculture. And one of the individuals who was presenting um, was modelling future impacts of climate change into 2050s and beyond, and essentially making the point that we could, because of climate change, reach circumstances where we are no longer able to grow food in the United Kingdom because of not average climate conditions, but the kind of episodes we get with either drought or flood. And we've recently been in those circumstances. You know, extreme events have really pushed agricultural production to the extreme. Now, run, run things forward. You know, imagine a scenario where we're in really serious water scarcity in parts of eastern England, which are the major agricultural producers. There is a set of circumstances where we in Wales are dependent on the food that is produced in those lowland systems. And... Yet at the same time, you know, we're always a little bit um, concerned about the export of water from Wales into England. So if you take an England and Wales UK wide perspective, we could reach the circumstances where water transfers become absolutely critical. So both agricultural production and demographic change actually lead to an expanding demand in the lowlands of the south and east of England, whereas most of the water is falling in the north and the west. There already are a series of water transfer schemes which are either planned or operating. So, you know, water goes from the Eland Valleys to Birmingham, water goes via Vermwe into Liverpool and the north. Um, the potential for the expansion of those things could become really very, very real prospects as we move forward. Lorna, do you want to come in? Yeah, so just to give you a factoid here, Article 11 of the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights says that it is the right of everyone to have an adequate standard of water um, which provides for the living for himself and his family. My belief is we are a united kingdom when it comes to our natural resources. Understanding that how we are in a more fortunate position to have a higher rainfall and then to hold someone else to ransom because they have less rainfall and yet they're providing us with the public goods and service is not actually, um, it's not fair in terms of human rights. Looking at that on a global scale, the way that we manage our water directly affects how other countries are then managing their water. So in Egypt, you're talking about less than 50 years of water availability for them to grow us runner beans. And yet we'll buy in that food and so export their water and import water when we are a water rich nation. It's something that we shouldn't be arguing about internally within the UK as to whether we should or shouldn't be trading water. We should be focusing on how our water resource is managed to ensure that we're able to export water, a very valuable, a life-saving commodity to other parts of the world. It's, it's a really interesting discussion because so much is made about Wales' ability to sell its natural resources for profit because that would power any future independent whales. Whereas you, I think, rightfully are saying that we don't, that that's so short-sighted and it doesn't really consider the interdependencies of how water works between the nations of the United Kingdom. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of, so Welsh water, 
a million people a year visit the Elam Valley because of how beautiful it is. And I, I live 15 minutes from the Elam Valley. So that is where I grew up. That is my community. And for us, the Elam Valley is actually something, yes, there were farms lost to create that environment. It is something which generations on, we see the beauty of what's being created. It is a, it's a stunning landscape. And it's something which is being created by having those reservoirs there. It's it's a very difficult conversation to have as to how we manage water going forward. But Steve mentioned about the east of England. One of the things that the east of England is doing is they're actually, rather than pumping water out to sea, they're creating internal reservoirs to then bring that water from the outer edge of the East Anglia inwards to supply water to um, areas which otherwise would have been pumping out in flood conditions. And they're storing that water in the landscape through using sustainable farming methods. So regenerative agriculture actually increases the vo volume of water that your soil can store to then be able to grow food and not be affected by drought, as we are seeing at the minute. Harry, have you got any thoughts on one of Wales's truly most difficult political third rails, the concept of where water should be uh, governed and regulated from? Well, on a non-political level, I was basically just going to say exactly what Lorna just uh, really eloquently summarised there in terms of we need to be managing our water better and not sending it straight out to sea as quickly as we can. Um, so things like uh, paying farmers for, for services for storing water, for example, reconnecting our floodplains, um, allowing our groundwater aquifers to recharge, uh, all sorts of water storage, natural uh, na nature-based solutions we should, we should be implementing to, uh, to alleviate both our water quantity and our water scarcity issues as well. All those sorts of solutions can do all of that and we currently just try and get the water off the land as quickly as possible and don't get any of the benefits that we should be getting. Beautifully put. Because you dodged that question so beautifully, I'm going to ask you another wonderfully easy one. We, we, we dip in here and there and talk about climate change, but it is so clear what is happening to, to us as a consequence of, of climate change. But do you think the various governments of the United Kingdom are doing enough to deal with climate change? No, I don't actually. And it comes back to the short term thinking, short term projects. Um, if you we look at the environmental sector, for example, there's lots of funding out there to do the sort of climate resilience projects that we need to do. So, for example, with rivers, there's things like um, shading along watercourses, there's things like reconnecting floodplains, like I mentioned. There's lots of work that can be done to help with uh, with issues on water quality, water scarcity. But all of the funding currently is in short term um, for one to two years, for example, it doesn't give you time to look at the bigger picture, to build relationships with landowners, to do bold uh, scale landscape change that we need to do to be able to ensure we have climatic resilience. So uh, I'd say that's the main one that needs to improve, really. And that's not just uh, you know, funding ENGOs, that's, that's government projects as well that need to be thinking of larger scale solutions. Thanks, Harriet. I just got criticised, uh, everybody, from, from Kerry for saying that question was a bit too broad. So I'm going to pass it over to Steve and just say climate change, discuss. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you've got my measure as an academic now. <laughs> <laughs> it is absolutely fundamentally clear that, that fresh water and water, freshwater ecosystems and water resources are probably the most impacted of all systems by climate change. Um, in that they are warming up 
in the same way that the atmosphere is warming, which has really huge effects on the organisms that live there. Because they are absolutely dependent on the hydrological cycle, floods and droughts are absolutely critical in terms of the impacts on people, but also the impacts on organisms. And just to bring this full circle to issues of water quality, the, the, the interaction between floods, droughts and water quality is just absolutely major. So discharge sources will discharge more at high flow pollutants will be diluted less at low flow. So unless we get adaptation right, these will continue to emerge as really significant ecological surprises. The best time to have started to act on this was 50 years ago. The second best time is accelerating now. And we absolutely have to take action on making our catchment more resilient to climate change impacts. So in terms of climate change, and Steve can correct me if I'm wrong here, it's not necessarily that we're receiving more water annually. It's about the periods that that water is falling, which is then causing the um, the events that we're seeing, the floods um, and uh, the large puddles in Cardiff that you're noticing. Um, one of the things I was going to add to that is in terms of all that water you're seeing puddling on the surface of um, those streets uh, and highways, uh, one of its biggest impacts is that an area that we're not currently regulated on is actually highway runoff or any runoff into and those discharges into watercourses. So one of the largest sources of pollution that you see in some waterways is because they receive very large flows from very large highways and it's going straight into quite a small stream network which is then overwhelmed and it fills up with sediment and pollutions such as hydro hydrocarbons so actually looking at how do we regulate on all sources where water is interacting with something which is going to have a direct impact on their quality as well as their quantity is the way that we should be looking to go in the future well uh, I have a horrible feeling that so many of my questions have been rather dour and grim this evening. So I'm going to ask a nice final question. I'd like to invite you all to talk about one good bit of news for water, rivers, or the sea. Um, so who wants to start us off? Harriet? Yeah, sure. I don't mind. So, well, obviously there's a lot that needs to be done, but I think that a good piece of news would be mainly just around the amount of public interest that we've had in river health in the last two years. I mean, if you were to think, yeah, even sort of three, four years ago in this job, but to, to think a dream about this many people that were interested in rivers, you, you'd never imagine it. So, okay, it's been sewage that's got people interested and what we've been talking about poo a lot, a lot recently, but the amount of people that care about rivers now, um, I mean, we, we do a lot of engagement with the public and with children in schools and the amount of people that had never been down to their local river, despite it being, you know, a few minutes walk from their house. But those people often go down to the beach to enjoy it. So it's it's raised a lot of awareness about the issues. Yes, but it's also got people really engaged and caring about their local rivers. So I think that's really, really exciting. And that will lead to a lot of change as well. Steve. I was going to make exactly the same public interest point as, as Harriet made, but there is one thing that has, has I think, blown me away. A, a, you know, a large part of my career has been around looking at the way that organisms in rivers tell us about the state of rivers, that, 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 that they are fantastic indicators of quality. 
and a lot of work that I've done has been on this this, this wonderful river bird, the Dipper, that is impacted by pollutants in all kinds of different ways. Progressively, since the 1990s onwards, dippers have been recolonising the South Wales river valleys to the extent that I can now walk one kilometre from my office onto the lower parts of the Taff and I can see dippers breeding. You know, the South Wales coalfield rivers are actually now better than they were in the 70s and 80s to the point that these clean water organisms have been able to recolonise them. And I think that's a good news story that we overlook. Lorna, with the last word. I have to confess, I mean, I'm going to echo the education element. And I've just spent last week at a Nuffield conference looking at what the agricultural sector is doing within water. And my work is predominantly in urban. And one of the things that I notice across the board is there is this genuine interest in how we can deliver betterment within water through biodiversity net gain all of those things and I think what I'm noticing and what I'm really buoyed by is the amount of people who are looking at solutions green solutions genuine green solutions including what I do as a um, as a job with Suds Plants Limited but all of these people are plowing on regardless of what necessarily is going on within government what the regulators are saying they just have this genuine genuine belief that there will be wars fought over water and we are a very water wealthy country. So we need to conserve and protect what we have and do the best job that we can with it. Thank you. And on that very uplifting note, I just wanted to say thank you all of you for coming on. If people want to find out more from you, touch on any of these issues with yourselves, where can they get in touch, whether that be whatever Twitter's called nowadays, or any other social media platform. Steve? Uh, I'm pretty easy to find online in all kinds of ways. People can find my email address. Uh, they can find me on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Instagram. If you search on my name, I don't hide behind any other label than my name. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Lorna? Um, if you're looking for me on Twitter, you'll either find me at Waterbore or you'll find me at Susplanter. And if you're looking for us online, look for Suspense Limited. Thank you very much, Lorna. Harriet. Uh, so we're at West Wales Rivers Trust on all the social media platforms and uh, on, on our website as well. Or I'm on Twitter on Harriet Alvis. Thank you very much, all three. If you have enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please don't forget to find us, Hereith, on all the socials at Hereith Pod. You can go to our website www.walespolitics.com thank you very much for supporting us with your ears but if you would like to do so with your wallet you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash pod thank you for listening to Hereith if you like what you heard please don't forget to subscribe rate and review